Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And this is 3CR and this is Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And today, before 6 o'clock this afternoon, I'll be speaking with Catherine Commons about her recent visit to Dipio in the Philippines. Catherine is from Mining Watch Canada. The report, the monthly report from the Gene Ethics Network with Bob Phelps. Also a report from Western Sahara with Kate Lewis. A speech at the IPAN conference by Rob Starry. And Dr Tim Anderson has just returned from two months in Syria. But first, I'm not sure Mr Kevin Healy's been anywhere, but anyway, he's here. A week, Jane Lister, when the vast majority of True Blue Aussies said it was not all right to say no. Way out on the right, but not all right. It was right to say people can marry whoever they want to marry. I'm sure many of us voted yes. Well, it wasn't a vote, was it? It was a 122 million delaying tactic. Ticked yes, wondering why the hell anyone wants to marry anyone. The truly cynical might say it just guarantees you the cost of a divorce, but if they want to, good on them. Why the hell? Hell is what it's all about. Sorry, sorry. Hell is what it's all about. Oh, Tiny, I didn't know you were there. Listener, it's former Big Supremo. Tiny, a bit more for the bosses. What do you mean? I mean all those people who thought it was all right to say yes will go to hell. Will go to hell. All of them? 62% of people of voting age? Unless they repent their sins. Unless they repent their sins. Tiny, you said those who opposed a plebiscite ignored the mandate the government got with its 30 or so percent of the primary vote. The 70 percent had no rights. Exactly. We had a mandate and the hard left socialist party and the extreme left greens and the same sex sinners had an obligation to recognise our mandate to save them from their sins. Oh, well, at least there's a mandate now for people to marry whom they want to marry. Certainly not. There is now an obligation to respect the rights of the more than 30% who voted no, who voted no. If the same-sex supporters ignore that right to frustrate these sinners at every turn, it will prove they have no respect for the democratic process, no respect for. So it's not winner-take-all. Depends who wins. Uh, But, Tiny, aren't you happy that your sister, also politically conservative, can marry her long-term partner and Alan Joyce in profits, who runs the airline that used to be our airline, and Jennifer wants a cut to wages of the Business Profits Council and other arch-conservatives can now marry their long-term partners? No. The dear baby Jesus is weeping. Look, I've got nothing against gay and all those other, you know, gender thingy people and and unnatural acts they want to teach our dear little children conceived in the image of the dear baby Jesus. Nothing whatever against, except, uh, go on, except, except they're gay. The dear baby Jesus is weeping. Uh, But according to you, he made them. And according to you, he, I'll say he, Tiny, in respect for your beliefs, he wouldn't make something imperfect. 
pagans like you don't understand the deep intelligence required to understand theological philosophy. Theological philosophy, although perfect. When I think about it, he did make me. He did make me. Yes, and more's the pity. Oh, sorry, that slipped out, listener. Sorry thing, to, terrible thing to say. I had planned to create a bit of satire around that repository of progressive thought, caring business class party backbencher Erica Betts on the bosses, but Eric beat me to the punch. Let's not forget, and let's for the sake of argument allow, a very generous 1% of the 30% of caring business class voters at the last election might have cast their vote saying, I am voting for a plebiscite on same-sex marriage. Not forget, Eric and co led the campaign that we must respect the mandate given by that 1%. Beating us to the punch? The voices of the millions of no voters deserve to be recognised in the framing of any legislation. A hubristic winner takes all approach in this matter would ignore the will of millions of true blue Aussies who have concerns about changing marriage. Direct quote. So how can we out-satirise that? did hope to have a word to another great believer in true blue Aussie values, Corgi St. Bernardi, but apparently he's taken a bed and won't come out from under the blankets. Now he knows bestiality has been let loose on the land as he attempts to protect every possible orifice. Big Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull did inject a line or two of partisanship into the bilateral yes supporter celebrations by declaring marriage equality could have been the law ages ago if the socialists had supported the plebiscite. Uh, but Malcolm, the plebiscite was tiny and Eric and Corey et al.'s means of avoiding the inevitable. It, it could have been passed ages, ages ago if you'd had the guts to tell them where to get off, let Parliament vote, and saved 122 mil and probably more in the process. Which shows that unlike Mr. Shorten Ambition, I am a true leader who believes in democracy. I had the guts to capitulate. Don't forget, we took the principled position. This was not an issue Parliament should vote on. Uh, so what happens now? Parliament will vote on it. And indeed, the media generally has been painting the yes result as a victory for Big Mel. So apparently the continual buckling at the knees, which gave us the 122 mil plus delaying tactic, was an act of political courage. I had the guts to capitulate. Then last night heard big economic guru Scuttlebem Moore Lashson say the government took a decision on the issue some months ago. Uh, what decision was that, Scuttlebem? We took a decision not to take a decision. Meanwhile, the government has made a very important decision to avoid the lower house making a decision, but a very important decision making life a little better for all of us. It decided only one house of parliament considered a time and can only sit to discuss one item a week. After a week of discussing that item, it must make way for the other house to spend a week discussing one item and so on, reducing substantially its capacity to make decisions, pass laws, all those things that are not better for all of us. Some cruel commentators suggest this extremely beneficial parliamentary program is driven less by public altruism and more by private self-preservation and concern for the private banks, although the latest 
very accurate truth in advertising campaign has the banks spending a fortune telling us we all own the banks. So apparently it's all right to wander in and just ask them to hand over to us our property. Fill this bag. And as if a government would put self-interest first, the bloody socialists and long-haired greenies and crossbench lots are carrying on and saying both houses of parliament should meet simultaneously and discuss numerous issues. 116 years of that, and where's that got us? Have they no thoughts for our welfare? Unlike our fossils minister, Josh Friedem Icebergs, interviewed Friday from Bonn, who explained countries expanding renewables and winning themselves off fossils had advantages over true blue Aussie, like not having all this lovely coal providing lots and lots of lovely profits. Look, it's not like we're doing nothing about renewables, but the economy demands coal must be the major energy source and export earner right up until, well, right up until the end of the world. We can't afford not to end the world. As the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin wisely editorialised in a rare attack on the pejorative Dan, evil state big supremo, he was threatening the economy by attempting to outgreen the evil Greens leading up to Saturday's by-election, which, by the by, worked a treat, didn't it? Backing a plastic bag ban, backflipping on a heroin safety injecting room trial, they also say he must backflip on the east-west link, but let's ignore that apparent contradiction. And, and this is the most heinous crime against humanity of all, is there? And resetting the balance of tenancy laws heavily in favour of renters over landlords. Does their evil have no bounds? And to think the goody-goody public housing and tenant advocates claim the laws don't go anywhere near far enough. If only they had the reasoned balance that great American Lord Rupert of Wapping brings to these matters. And before we finish, must apologise for calling Business Profits Council spokesperson Jennifer wants a cut to wages an arch-conservative when she has gone out of her way to make life better for all of us. Sorry, Jennifer. At the same time, exposing what we had the prescience to expose some weeks ago, that the World Bank is the biggest long-haired commie greenie threat to the world economy, to the greatest little economic order of them all. Exposing that World Bank Communist Manifesto report, which claimed that if you missed it last time, you're going to laugh yourself silly at the inanity of it all, claimed, wait for it, the trickle-down effect, those drops of yellow liquid, doesn't trickle down. And, and this is the most erroneous claim of all, that tax cuts for the filthy rich do not generate jobs, do not drive economic growth. Simply, the World Bank Commie Front claimed, simply put more filthy wealth into the pockets of the filthy rich. Well, thankfully, the True Blue Aussie Business Profits Council has asked its members about this, and they all declare if only they could get a tax cut, they would invest more, would create jobs, would generate growth. And Malcolm, who addressed them last night, said arising from the survey of the filthy rich, the message from business is clear and compelling. It is proof tax cuts will create more jobs and higher paying jobs. What more proof do we need than the True Blue Aussie Profits Council surveying itself? 
and releasing the results reluctantly, apparently, because finally, economic guru scuttled them, said business should do more to help the government help us all by helping the filthy rich. But the Profits Council was reluctant because it might be seen to be partisan on these matters. Not the neutral caring for all of us body that it is. As if anyone would think Jennifer and co, the co including Malcolm Scuttledem and co, were partisan. Come on. Good afternoon. And for more of Mr Kevin Healy, it's right here, 855-3cr.org.au. All those things at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for City Limits. On the program last week, Catherine Cooman, the Research Coordinator for Mining Watch Canada, spoke about the battle to get Australian gold miner Oceania Gold out of El Salvador. Today, the other country where Oceania Gold is operating, it's the Philippines. There's a gold and copper mine at Didipio, 270 kilometres north of Manila, which has devastated the environment and communities. I asked Catherine when was her first visit to Didipio. I first went there in 2014, but this is a project I had heard about for a very long time because I've been working in the Philippines since, well, since the 80s, actually. And um, this used to be a Climax Arimco mine, which is an Australian mine. And Mining Watch Canada only works on Canadian mining companies operating overseas. So in Canada, we'll work on any mines that are there. But um, when we look overseas, we only work on Canadian mines. And so... There was a huge struggle to stop that mine from ever going ahead. There really was one. There was one of the biggest and longest struggles in the Philippines. And then, unfortunately, the mine did uh, start construction in, in 2011. What were the issues of the people that were trying to stop it going ahead? This mine is... It's so There's so many similarities with the mine in El Salvador. It's um, a province that's also landlocked. It's surrounded by other provinces. The mine is in the mountains. And the mine is, again, at the headwaters of a huge river system in the Philippines. In fact, the waters that start where this mine is actually end up in the biggest river system in the entire Philippines, the Cagayan River. And, again, people were fighting to protect their water. Water is very often the key motivator for people who are trying to stop a mine. They have a knowledge or an understanding that this is going to be very destructive. And in fact, that is what's proven to be the case. The mine um, started construction in 2011, but um, I first went there in 2014, and now I've been back this year and will likely be returning now yearly for a while. But one of the biggest things that you can just see, you can actually see the waterways around the mine are contaminated. It's a very typical type of contamination. I've been working on mining for 20 years, and I recognize it. But the other problem is depletion. So it's always a matter of pollution and depletion. And depletion because once you start an open pit mine, you basically mine into the water table. And so water in the water table rushes into the mine, and then that has to be pumped out. And in pumping it out, you actually lose that water because it's contaminated and it's no longer it's no longer fit to release into the environment. So there's um, a big problem right now in the community, and I was told about this quite explicitly, with wells running dry. And the company is responding by putting in water stations where people can bring buckets, uh, you know, sort of like containers, and then they have to fill these containers, but they actually have to pay a peso per liter for this water. The company is also giving them contaminated water that they can use for other things than drinking, so they can use that for washing clothes and 
dishwashing and that sort of thing, but this is water that they cannot drink. But for drinking water, they now have to buy their drinking water where they didn't used to have to do that. So this is a huge imposition on the community. Can you describe the area that is now the mine and what's happened to the people whose land it was who've been displaced? People have been displaced. There are, oh, there's so many different layers of the struggle there. One layer of the struggle is people who've been displaced and who have not been given adequate compensation for what they've lost to be able to reestablish themselves. And this is so often the problem. You know, you can't just say, oh, well, you have so many acres of rice field and so many uh, fruit trees and, 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 you know, add these things up and give people a lump sum and off you go. It takes years to establish those rice fields. It takes years for those trees to bear fruit. You, you can't just take a cash payment and expect to be able to, you know, have the same level of food security and subsistence that you had before, even if you can find other land. And so this is this is a big problem. And so one of the struggles that people are having is is actually uh, filing complaints against the company for compensation, uh, equitable compensation for the land that they've lost. People who are still living there are sort of squeezed up around the edges of the mine, and they're having a lot of problems with both both dust from the operations and also houses being cracked because of the blasting from the mine. But what I heard most was were two things. One was the issues around water, so very similar, again, to El Salvador. And the other thing that I heard quite a bit was concerns around militarization, the fact that the mine is increasingly becoming guarded and that there's there are real concerns around peace and order for people um, around the mine. And this is also quite typical. Is it true that people's houses were illegally demolished? in those early years and people illegally displaced? Yeah, that's certainly what I've heard. And using um, the military or the police to do it for them or have they got their own private police? No, this is certainly what I've heard and I haven't yet had enough time to do the kinds of interviews I need to do to really confirm this, but this is certainly what I've been told. The other thing, I think that's a major concern, is the company continues to drill around within its concession and people have been quite adamant that this mine should not ever expand so there's a huge struggle on to make sure that that you know they're already very unhappy with the mine that they've got but that it not expand and in particular they've been blockading the drills so once the company starts to try to move into an area to do its drilling you know further exploration for expansion of the mine, they blockade been blockading the road, and this is a great cost to themselves because this is very dangerous. They're doing something that you know they could be prosecuted for or arrested for, and yet they feel so strongly that they don't want this mine to expand. And one particular area that I I visited was a valley near the mine where there's a known to be gold, and where people are quite sure that that's one of the areas the mine would want to expand into. And the people took me around and showed me that they have a, a really strong uh, citrus farming organizations going on within that valley. So they've got all kinds of citrus fruits and they have plans for putting in plants to produce juice for the kids that would be no added sugar. So they have a lot of dreams about, you know, this valley. And clearly the, the citrus plantations that are there now are quite extensive. And so there's a a real push on from the people in, in that area to make sure that the mine doesn't expand into that area. And all of this is sort of directed towards 2019 
because the agreement that the company has with the government is called the Financial and Technical Assistance Agreement, an FTAA, and that FTAA is going to run out in 2019. And the company, of course, would want to renew it, and in renewing it would then get access to areas that they've determined, you know, are, are gold-bearing areas. And uh, people are really organizing now to try and stop the, the company from getting its renewal of that FTAA. Are they large areas and a lot of people impacted? They're large areas. I'm sorry I can't give you the exact numbers of people impacted. And these are very remote areas. These are rural areas. These are very remote areas. But they're areas where people have already had to move into from other areas. So these are people who have been displaced. They're indigenous Ifugao. So they've come from other parts of the Cordillera in the Philippines where they've been displaced by dams and mines in that area. And then they've moved into this area and, and more or less established the, the, the dwellings and the villages in this valley. And now they're being threatened with displacement again. Does that make it easier for the mining companies to get rid of these people because they're not the traditional owners? Yeah, it does. It doesn't help. Although they've now been in this valley, and this was interesting, they were explaining to me that they really weren't, um, you know, they, they moved into this area from the Cordillera because they were displaced there, but they moved in about 50 years ago. And in Philippine law, it's, uh, if people have been living somewhere for 50 years, then they actually are considered the, the legal owners. And they do have land titles. One of the things that they have been doing is securing land titles for the area. It's just that it's not as thickly populated as, say, a, a, you know, a, a, an established town. or Like, these are villages. And, and I think that's more what, what makes it threatening for them, you know, that this is not a huge population, but they're people that absolutely rely on this valley. And the citrus from this valley is, is exported all over the Philippines. It goes to Manila. You know, they have, they have contracts with, with companies in Manila, and they come and get the citrus and bring it down to Manila. So it's, this is a serious, uh, you know, operation. It, 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 it seems small scale, and it's very sustainable. There's lots of sun panels, and, um, you know, the, it, it, it's actually there's a real sustainability around the way people are operating. They're very careful with the environment. And there were small-scale miners in that valley just panning for gold, and they actually had them all move out because they didn't want them destroying the waterways. So... There's been a real ecological development within this valley, and now they're being threatened by this uh, this huge Australian-Canadian company. Talking about the law, there was a, a suspension of Oceana Gold's right to mine there earlier this year or late last year by the, the then Environment Minister who suddenly didn't have a job anymore. Yep. Yeah, this is this is one of the most... <laughs> when I was there, this is what people talked to me more about this one thing than about anything else, and that was the amazing amount of hope they had when the new Department of Environment and Natural Resources chair was a woman called Gina Lopez, and she was a known activist, and she was given this this incredibly powerful position and used it in a way that really every Department of Environment and Natural Resources chair should do. Um, she called for an audit, an independent audit of all the mines going on in the country. And the audit was to see whether they were operating within the law and what kind of social license to operate they had, what kinds of support they had from the local communities. And there were a number of uh, issues found. Now, that audit has not been released, so I haven't seen a copy of it, but from what was released in terms of um, her suspension of the mine, it came down to 
uh, contamination of water, and it came down to the concerns raised by the community and the opposition to this, this project and its expansion. And so she had ordered a suspension of the mine, but then she was not confirmed. You know, so she was put in place by the president, but then she was not confirmed by the Senate and the Congress. And so she lost her position. And since then? Since then, the mine has just been carrying on with its operations. The new head of the Department of Environment and Natural Resources is not carrying through with the suspensions that she has had called for. One thing we haven't focused on yet is the biological diverse ecosystem of that area of the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that a little? Yeah. This particular mine, the area that it's in, is really remote. And in fact, when the struggle first started to stop the mine, I I happened to go up there again this year with someone who was involved in that original struggle to stop Climax Arimco. And he said at that time, there were absolutely no roads going in there. You could only get into little trails on a motorbike. And he said, you know, even just going in on a motorbike, you could see all kinds of animals that are becoming rare in the Philippines, certain eagles and certain deer that he said, you know, you you have a hard time finding these these in other areas. There was huge biodiversity there. And in fact, that was it was declared as as an active biodiversity zone. And in fact, the governor of um, Nueva Vizcaya now is seeking to work through provisions within the Philippine law to have it officially declared as as an area of, of great biodiversity in order to help stop the expansion of the mine. Now, of course, there's a road going in there, and, you know, the mine itself is impacting the area greatly. So this, this, this changes a lot. And also the impact on the culture of the people who use those mountains and forests as part of their culture for their food, for religious yeah. ceremonies, yeah, all absolutely. that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I said, these, these were Ifugao, um indigenous people, and they did tell me about that. They told me about rituals and traditions that they had had that they that they weren't carrying out. And the mountain that was actually destroyed for this mine, the Dinkidai Mountain, was actually considered a sacred mountain. And so some of the rituals and some of the traditions were, were directly related to that mountain. And it was interesting when I was in the valley, which is sort of, you know, just behind the mine, right away when I arrived in the valley and the, sitting around at the first house and starting to talk to people, I was looking around and the valley is sort of surrounded by mountains and there was one mountain that just stuck right up and it was very noticeable and I said, what's that mountain over there? And they said, well, that's right behind that mountain is the mine. So that was sort of the remnant of this, this very remarkable mountain that was destroyed to allow the mine to go ahead. You touched on the health problems of this mine too, the the water and the dust, there must be a lot of skin problems, there must be a lot of respiratory problems for the children, older people? Both of those, yeah. Particularly um, respiratory problems related to the dust, and those seem to be clustered among the children and the older people. I did speak to one of the doctors in the area who said that, you know, he was really struck. He said this is much higher than he would come across in other areas of children and old people um, having very severe respiratory problems. And then, of course, the problems with the water, people were showing me skin lesions, you know, saying that they, they can't, you know, bathe in the river or wash clothes in the river as they used to do because of, of, the, of the problems they get, the skin lesions that they get. And it's very obvious that the water is contaminated. Now, of course, the company will argue that it's small-scale miners, but I asked people about that because there was panning for gold in this area. You know, you'll very often have that situation where 
you know, a, a large-scale mining company will specifically go to areas where there's panning going on. And, and that's, that's a pretty small-scale operation. But people said, you know, they didn't have these problems with the waterways when it was just the panning that was going on. But since the large operation has gone in now, now they are having these problems. Is it a 24-hour mine where they have blasting and drilling? Yes, yes, it goes on day and night. And how far away are the people from that noise? Oh, they're right around. They're right around the operations. It's a mountainous area, and so it's it, there aren't a lot of places for people to move to. So they're clustered right around the mine. And I mean, I, I was there when the blasting happened, and the ground literally shakes. You, you, you kind of jump. You think it's like an earthquake or something. It's it's quite strong. What support are the people getting from organisations in the area, and also organisations from outside the area? Yeah, this is also important, um, particularly now with with 2019 coming up when the um, when the the lease will be renewed. There are organisations in the area themselves, the local people themselves have organised in grassroots organisations, and they are also very much connected to the uh, provincial government because the provincial governor is extremely supportive of the struggle of the people to have this mine not expand from where it is now. And then there's national organizations, there's national networks. These national networks were involved in the original struggle to try and stop the mine going ahead when it was Climax Rimco. And they're now becoming active again to support the people in trying to stop the renewal of the permit in 2019. You mentioned before off-air about accountability of foreign companies, mining companies working in developing countries. Is that apply to the Philippines? Yeah, so there's two ways of looking at this. There's, there's you know, the, the provisions and the laws and, you know, the regulations within the Philippines, which everyone is now looking at to see how those can be used to try to stop the expansion of this mine. And then there's the possibility of holding this company to account in the home countries of this company. So it's, a, it's an Australian-Canadian company. And you know, it, it, it really is, in the, in the world we're living in now, it really is important that home countries like Australia and like Canada step up and hold our companies to account at home for harm that they're doing overseas. And in Canada, we have a network, the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability, and we're pushing for uh, mechanisms in Canada so that we can, people can bring their complaints to Canada um, and have the Canadian government hold companies to account if they're Canadian companies. And I know that there's an effort like that underway right now in Australia as well to look at ways to hold Australian companies to account at home for uh, harm that they do overseas. Finally, Catherine, what do the people, when they're talking to you, what's the main thing they want organisations like yours and here in Australia to do? What they really want is two things. They want support for the struggle that they themselves are at the front lines of. So they themselves are organized and they are, you know, putting their lives on the line when they, you know, stand in front of the drills and when they argue that they don't want this company to destroy this valley with, with its citrus fruits. They need those those actions to be broadcast. They need people here to understand that they're taking these risks and that they're standing between the drilling machines of this company, this Australian company, and their livelihood and their land and their environment. They need us to understand when they're doing that, so they need us to let Australians and Canadians know when they're doing these things. 
and they also need us to engage with the company directly and to you know and to engage with our lawmakers in in Canada and in Australia and and to make sure that Australians and Canadians know that this is being done in their name you know and we have to remember these companies never operate uh, purely independently they always get lots of support from the governments of the company of the countries that they're from so in Canada you know we have export credit agency support we have political support that these companies get and they shouldn't get that support while they're being opposed when they don't have a social license to operate and when they've already harmed the environment where they're operating that's all i have is there anything else you'd like to add no i'm i'm very grateful to be in australia and um meeting lots of people here who care about this issue and and that's that's wonderful and we're hoping to work together more closely thank you very much thank you and that was catherine cummins from mining watch Canada speaking about Oceania Gold and if you'd like to show your disapproval of the operations of Oceania Gold their monthly demonstration outside their headquarters is this Friday <coughs> excuse me 357 Collins Street in the city is the headquarters of Oceania Gold there is a, a small demonstration there every fourth Friday of the month so it would be really good if you could be there at 12 o'clock and perhaps we could make it a, a bigger demonstration against Oceana Gold. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. And next on Tuesday Home Time, I'm joined on the phone by Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Bob, let's begin with a good news story. Well, yes, uh, the GM-free moratorium, which has been in place in South Australia since 2003, is to continue now until 2025, all being well. The Greens' Mark Parnell got a bill up last week in the Upper House in the Parliament with the ALP government support and with one of the crossbenchers also in support, which was terrific. The small uncertainty remains that it still has to go back to the Lower House, so it needs the government to initiate during the final session for this year before the election next March, uh, which is at the end of November. We're pretty confident that it's a goer, but you just never know, and we're still asking people to put heat on the South Australian government to make sure that the um, extension bill goes through and the moratorium uh, on GM crops in South Australia should continue till 2025, which is fantastic, because the Liberals, of course, although they're saying, oh, we just want an inquiry, very clearly were going to ramrod the uh, rescission of the present moratorium through uh, if they got elected to government next year. What's the situation with other states that have got a moratorium? Well, Tasmania still seems pretty good, and the ACT has an open-ended moratorium, but, of course, uh, the ACT doesn't do very much in the way of uh, agriculture. The main other one is Tasmania, and... uh, after its experience of being GM contaminated in the late 1990s, all of the parties there are also in favour of maintaining their 
GM-free status, their clean, green food image, reaping the benefits, which, of course, the South Australians can get as well. We can't say that for Victoria, can we? How did they get GM into Victoria? What was the situation? Well, there was um, a moratorium from 2003 when the federal regulator issued licences for national release of GM canola until 2008. John Brumby, who was then uh, the Premier, got Gus Nossel to give him a tick, saying uh, this is going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. And uh, so genetically manipulated canola was introduced in Victoria in 2008. However, it hasn't been the great world beater that was claimed, and uh, it's somewhat less than 10% of the canola crop now. And, uh, of course, the, um, the growers of GM canola, although they think they get some advantages by being able to spray their crops more often and at higher doses with the Roundup herbicide, also suffer when they go to sell their grain by receiving a much lower price. And the cost of that Roundup? Well, yes, uh, there are quite a few additional costs. Of course, they have to use Monsanto's patented Roundup. They have to pay extra for the seed. They have to segregate it from the GM-free grain to make sure that it doesn't contaminate other streams of production. Then they get the lower price as well. So really, all round, it's pretty well a bad deal. And uh, almost all growers have remained GM-free, and there are very few that have actually used the product. As I mentioned, uh, it's getting a lower price. So, for instance, last week in Victoria, the discount for GM canola was $64 a ton in comparison with the GM-free varieties, and that's a pretty big hit when you take your crop into the silo and you get paid $64 a ton less for it. It's about a um, 12% reduction in price. And that reflects the very ready market that we have into Europe for our GM-free products. Of course, some of the enthusiasts for this, like the um, leaders of the grains industry in South Australia, are saying um, the moratorium is bad news, we want it thrown out. But uh, even they admit that half of their own growers still favour being GM-free. So they're very thoroughly divided. The Lucerne seed growers, who must produce GM-free seed, uh, decided that they wouldn't begin growing uh, the, the GM Lucerne varieties, which have now recently become available in the USA. So they're remaining GM-free. The wine industry has some GM options and hasn't taken them. The organic growers, of course. And the food industry generally uh, is still saying uh, it wants to be GM-free. And indeed, an increasing number of products are out there in the marketplace being labelled GM-free as well, and they too earn premium prices, which is really fantastic. So the community at large are supporting that option, saying no to GM, and that's being reflected in public policy in Tasmania, in South Australia, in the ACT, and indeed in Northern Territory. Why then is it canola that's got GM in it? Uh, Really, they're the only two crops available, cotton, and canola are the only GM crops that would be available in Australia. We could do corn, we could do soybean, and now there's sugar beet available as well, which are genetically manipulated. Well, the sugar beet, really the cane growers of Queensland, uh, are not interested in sugar beet. Uh, They've got their own industry going. They've tried to GM their crop. Nothing has happened on that front. The research has failed. Corn, 
creating a storm in a teacup because we're a small corn producer and corn user here, except in animal feed. And the same with soybeans. The soybean industry here labels itself GM-free. All the soy milks, for instance, uh, the tofu, are all clean, green and GM-free and want to say so, and they get premium prices as a result. So there's no pressure there really to bring in those other GM crops at this stage. I can't see that in the, um, in the foreseeable future that there would be any pressure in those directions as well because that's what shoppers want. Farmers and the food industry have the good sense to provide what shoppers want. We'll keep doing that. Of course, some GM soy and corn does come in from overseas, and that's fed to animals, pigs, chickens, and in some cattle feeds. There is an intrusion there, but it's processed first. It isn't grown in Australia, and as a result, the vast majority of Australian agriculture, something over 95% of all growers, remain GM-free and are very happy with that situation. Does canola get into food that people mightn't be aware of? Well, yes, it does. Canola oil, of course, is the main product that comes out of it, as well as the um, stubble, which is turned into stock feed as well. As far as the canola oil is concerned, and incidentally also cottonseed oil, the cottonseed especially generally goes into fast food frying, but it can also be included with cottonseed oil in those generic mixed really unlabeled oils that you can see in some supermarkets. They're to be avoided, really. If you don't know what you're buying, it's better just leave it on the shelf. And, of course, when it comes to vegetable oils, olive oil really is the go if you're cooking at home. It's the healthy oil, the oil that really delivers those taste and health benefits that uh, most people want if they're thinking about the quality of their food and um, doing themselves a favour. The new GM techniques, including CRISPR, did you watch 7.30 report last night talking about the, the babies with the third parent? I didn't catch the story. Uh, no, I was um, here in the office last evening, but I do know the story. Uh, yes, there's now in Britain approved the blending of uh, genes so that um, a child can have uh, three parents, which does seem a bit weird and queer. I don't see really why anybody would want to do it. And, of course, all of these new genetic manipulation techniques raise serious ethical and moral concerns when it comes to fiddling with the human genome. The main focus of concern particularly is on the germline, which, of course, means that if you manipulate sperm or egg, then it can be passed on to future generations as well. We have no systems for monitoring the ongoing impact of a genetic, a deliberate genetic manipulation in any particular generation of children. All of those kinds of systems, if this is going to be seriously contemplated, need to be done. At the moment, it seems to me that it's being used simply as some kind of a curiosity and as a stalking horse for the position of the industry, science, establishment science, and many of the regulators around the world, including our own, who at the moment are applying serious pressure to deregulate the new so-called gene editing, the new genetic engineering techniques, particularly CRISPR. Our own Office of Gene Technology Regulator is at the moment developing an option for the deregulation of CRISPR and its products before 
there's any history of safe use of this particular technology and before there's any refutation of the evidence that the use of CRISPR can have a large number of off-target effects. It's being used to manipulate plants, animals, microorganisms, insects, trees, fish and human beings of course. The enthusiasts for it I think are just getting far too far ahead of public feeling about this because uh, we don't want to be allowing people in lab coats to uh, literally cut and paste, delete genes from living organisms without knowing the consequences and that's the situation we're in at the moment. It's really a very dark future indeed, very unclear what the impacts will be and I think we just need a bit of steadiness and we certainly don't want our regulator deregulating a lot of this stuff right now. There's a process of review going on about the gene technology regulations. The regulator just uh, about a, a week and a half ago declared herself in favour of what's called option three which says some of these techniques need not be regulated. Our position as community representatives is at least for now everything should be regulated and on the other side you've got industry and establishment science saying let's take the uh, rules off, let's deregulate immediately all of these uh, new genetic manipulation techniques and their products and just let's get on with it, this is such a clever technology. It was only invented uh, less than five years ago, there are no products out there, there's no history of safe use and we just need a precautionary approach. But they are, as being, they are really, from my perspective, being as reckless as hell. You're also talking about biological weapons which could be produced with these technologies. Well, that's the worst case scenario, yes. But the, um, the Secret Service community last year in the USA did warn policymakers that biohackers, people who don't have appropriate um, intentions, but may have the skills to actually do this kind of work, could build biological weapons. And indeed, some of these people are actually already working in informal laboratories, many of them unskilled, around the world, including Biofoundry in Sydney, which is um, an interesting establishment. The, the laboratories were set up for a few thousand dollars. They don't have an institutional biosafety committee, which is supposed to be in place in every research institution in the country in order to have day-to-day -day oversight. And very interestingly, the chief biohacker at Biofoundry is a guy called Meow Meow, changed his name by deed poll some time ago. This guy, interestingly, is running in the New England by-election on December the 2nd against Barnaby Joyce uh, for the Science Party. It's an interesting thing, really. Science is supposed to be so objective and uh, honest and truthful, but it really goes to show, I think, that science in the embodiment of the science party is like all other human enterprises, politicised. And it is heavily politicised because this whole thing and the reason that it's going at a breakneck speed and scientists are so keen to get that money from their commercial collaborators is that grant money, that money for research and development that um, is just waiting there to grab this technology and run with it. 
Meow Meow is a good example of how not to do this enterprise in an orderly way, in a way that is regulated to protect the public interest. That's what we need. We need a precautionary approach. And over the next three months, we're going to have a serious row with the Office of Gene Technology Regulator about ensuring that they do indeed regulate using the precautionary principle. Unfortunately, the federal government at the same time has chosen to review the whole gene technology regulatory scheme, uh, which is run by all the governments of Australia collectively. It's very clear from that that they too have a deregulatory agenda. They're doing consultations around the country at the moment. They're running it pretty much as a closed shop. They've got an expert committee in charge, which includes three gene jockeys and a, uh, a management guru as their expert committee. And it's really totally unsatisfactory from beginning to end. And yet they've dumped both of these processes on the community at um, Christmas time. Are we out of the step with other countries with these deregulations or are we following other countries? It's hard to say yet. Um, everybody's thinking about it. We're certainly out of step with New Zealand, which decided uh, more than a year ago and under a conservative government that everything would be regulated and that they would have a, a let's say, a go-slow uh, attitude to these new technologies and their products. Of course, the science community were very unhappy about that, but that's uh, nonetheless in place. It's under their um, toxics and GM regulatory system. It's a pretty robust system, and it's good to see. In Europe, you've got a mixed situation. A couple of governments, Austria and one other, have um, done research saying there are a large number of off-target effects of um, CRISPR and the other new GM techniques, and uh, we must regulate them all. But in the UK and in some other European countries, you've got a much different mood where, of course, you've got the example which you mentioned for the 730 report. I I think that was a report from the UK in which they've um, allowed the production of these children with three parents. This is not a nice situation, and it reflects a certain cavalier attitude and a disregard for human life, really for our environment. What our regulator is trying to do is to say, oh, well, we'll have the regulation of, of animals, genetically engineered animals, and plants separate, human beings separate. By having them separate, we'll be able to deregulate some of these activities immediately. This is not good enough. We can do a lot better. Most countries haven't yet decided. They're waiting for the evidence to come in about just what all this means. And meanwhile, uh, Australia is racing ahead saying, we've got to have it, we've got to have it, we're going to fall behind if we don't get it. A reckless and dangerous uh, attitude to take. And we're hoping that um, with uh, some support in the federal parliament and around the states that uh, we might be able to get a more precautionary and a more balanced and reasonable approach. You've spoken on the program a number of times, Bob, about golden rice. Is there new information about that? Ah, well, golden rice is still under review, of course, yes. The rice with the vitamin A that's supposed to um, give people the micronutrients that they need to make them healthy. But, of course, in those communities where uh, people are malnourished or hungry, vitamin A isn't the only nutrient that that they're missing. It's essential, I think, that 
people be given access to the balanced, complete diets of good, healthy food that we're all entitled to. And the United Nations, through its uh, special rapporteur on the right to food, asserts that right. And worldwide, that's where our resources should be going to make sure that the human right to food is met. Meanwhile, of course, the research is going on to try to get more beta-carotene, uh, the precursor of vitamin A, into rice. But there's some new research that shows, and not surprisingly, that the genetic manipulation of the rice is the problem itself, that it so disrupts the basic metabolism of the plant that these plants underperform when they're planted out. And as a result, particularly in the Philippines, where most of the research is being done, the growers have simply said, this is not going to be economic for us. We're not interested in growing it. So it is stalled at the moment. We, of course, are being blamed. The global movement for GM free being blamed for having stalled the research and development, convinced policymakers not to accept it. But the truth is that the technologies are dud. They've over the last 25 years, poured tens of millions of dollars into this dream, this stalking horse for the rest of the GM industry, which was going to be so great, given away free, like software, to every grower who wanted it, or that's what they claim, because, of course, DuPont owns some of the um, intellectual property, going to be given away, going to be the greatest thing, going to fix everybody's um, health problems. It turns out know that we've actually wasted the money. It's money that should have gone into helping to ensure that uh, people got the good, balanced diets that they deserve. And I think that should be the agenda. That was one of the Millennium goals. It hasn't been achieved. We need to keep working on it, uh, particularly in those communities which are malnourished, some 800 million people globally undernourished, but golden rice is not going to do the, prob uh, the job of fixing that problem. At some point, the boosters of this, the scientific community, are going to have to simply accept that it doesn't work. Let's move on and let's meet people's human rights. And let's move on to regenerative farming. Well, yes, that's uh, the buzz now beyond organics to regenerate soils, to regenerate productive systems. And indeed, there was a nice new book came out, The Call of the Reed Warbler by Charlie Massey came out a couple of weeks ago. It's certainly a good read if you want the views of a person who's spent most of his adult life on the farm, but um, nearing 60 and having discovered regenerative agriculture and being a writer into the bargain, decided that he would go and get himself a doctorate from the university using all the knowledge that he'd accumulate and has now written this book as well. So it's a great read. The permaculturalists and uh, the organic industry are on the same track. It's time, I think, that we started to seriously question what uh, industrial agriculture has done to our environment, what its future is now that oil and phosphates are running out, the climate's changing, and soil and water are going to get even more scarce than they have been. We need a new system. We need to be talking about uh, regenerative farming systems and the government needs to seriously get some resources behind this instead of, uh, we've seen in the last day or two, CSIRO bugling, 
oh, industrial agriculture and agribusiness are going to be the greatest thing. New high-tech coming along is going to be marvellous. They're ignoring the reality. It will fall in the heap. And meantime, we need to begin that transition to the regenerative systems that can and could and will feed future generations in this um, dry and rather sparsely soiled land of ours. We need to um, be getting serious about all those things. And also, of course, we need to be reminded that uh, Indigenous Australians lived here for 40,000 years. There were large communities of them and uh, that many of the crop plants and animals that they used for their sustenance are still there, are still well adapted to the Australian environment. Bruce Pascoe and others in his book Dark Emu has talked extensively about how these well-adapted plants and animals could actually make a very serious contribution uh, to Australian agriculture now because Indigenous Australians lived in settled communities. They did conduct agriculture. They were not the itinerants that uh, they were made out to be by we when we invaded Australia. It's time for a change of thinking about that as well. Finally, Bob, the name of the author and the book once more. Oh, yes, yes. Charlie Massey, M-A-S-S-Y, The Call of the Reed Warbler. The other book is called Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. I could also mention another rather interesting book uh, published just last week by Kath Wilson, who lives in um, Healesville, called Tinkerers, which is in a similar theme, which is about the people in Australia who invent things, create things, do up stuff. There's a whole new movement of conservation and regeneration in our technologies as well as people develop things that can solve real problems on the land, at home and so on by tinkering. It's an interesting book, uh, so look out for that as well. Thanks, Bob. Great. Thanks, Jan. And that, of course, was Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. And those three books Bob mentioned at the end there, Bruce Pascoe, Dark Emu, Charlie Massey, The Call of the Reed Wobbler, and Tinkerers by Kath Wilson. I'm not quite sure where you get them, but I think if you sort of got onto Bob at Gene Ethics Network, and put in a request, I think Bob might be able to let you know exactly where you can get either or all of those books. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. We're on digital. This is 3CR. If you're in the old analogue, it's 8.55am. If you're listening on your computer and you can listen to this program for a whole week from the first broadcast time it's 3cr.org.au and you can also have the program sent to your computer and when you can listen to it at your leisure and to do that you need also to get on to 3cr.org.au and the time right at this moment is just turned two minutes to five o'clock you are invited to Sampari Exhibition Celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. 
Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. for an update on events in occupied Western Sahara, the last colony in Africa, and it's occupied by neighbouring Morocco. Kate Lewis is from the Australian Western Sahara Association. But first, Kate, an event going back to May this year, when a ship was detained in South Africa, a ship containing phosphate taken illegally from Western Sahara by Morocco, that ship is still in South Africa over 200 days later. Yes, it was coming from El Ayoun, which is in Western Sahara, and with the phosphate from Bukra, their, their mine, and it, we thought at first it was heading for Incitec Pivot, the Australian importer, but it actually turned out to be destined for balanced agri-nutrients a New Zealand importer. The ship was detained at Port Elizabeth and the cargo has remained on board the ship and the ship has remained in port ever since. And so that must be by now uh, 200 days in detention. We're still waiting for the court to legally hand over the cargo to the Polisario Front or the Sahrawi authorities. And what's that cargo worth? The cargo is said to be worth $5 million. And the cost of keeping it in that port? We're not exactly sure how much it is, but normally to keep a ship out of use in this way would be costing the company in the region of $10,000 a week. And what about shipments coming since that time from Western Sahara? They've changed their plans. They've changed their strategies. The ships that are bound for Canada or New Zealand are now having, not going through the Panama Canal because a, a fortnight later, after this ship in South Africa was detained, another ship was detained 
crossing through the Panama Canal. And so they have to go the long way round Cape Horn if they're going in that direction. And uh, New Zealand has continued to receive shipments. Incidec Pivot, as far as we know, has not received any further shipments since that date. So if they did, they would have to, they would probably choose not to go via South Africa. Uh, the other shipments, I'm not quite sure how they go. The, there is an Indian importer that has received some shipments. But we think the Lithuanian importer has stopped using this product anymore, and possibly Brazil. So it's had quite a big impact on the marketing of the Saharawi phosphate by the Moroccans. And there's only one Australian company importing it from Morocco? Yes, there used to be three, but the two others dropped out. So there's just Insatec Pivot, which is based in Melbourne with processing plants in Geelong and Portland. A very disturbing story about the death of a, a young woman in Western Sahara. That was horrible, yes. A young woman known as Minatu went out one afternoon or evening, as she must have often done, to get a few things in the local shop. And when she didn't come back, the family became concerned. They initially went to the houses of her relatives and friends nearby. There was no sign of her. They hadn't seen her. So they had an anxious night waiting to hear what had happened. But in the morning there was the worst news that they could have received, which was that her body was found on a beach south of the city, on the outskirts of the city. But Dakhla is on a long peninsula at right in the south of Western Sahara, with uh, like beach on three sides, really. She was uh, she was naked. Her head and face had been clearly badly beaten. Her clothes were under a rock nearby. She was taken by the police. Family were told that she had committed suicide. Somehow they managed to get this story of of how. The, the, the injuries that she had sustained, which are not the kind of injuries that anyone would give to themselves, even if they were wishing to commit suicide. And apart from the fact that there was absolutely no history of mental ill health, and the mother particularly has been deeply offended by the implication that her daughter was suffering from mental ill health. Uh, the body was taken to... Agadir, which is like some thousands of kilometres north, without the consent or the knowledge of the family, for an autopsy. Uh, But before they had the result of the autopsy, the body was brought back and buried, again without the knowledge or presence of the family, on the outskirts of Dakhla. That action is, is a particularly cruel extra twist of the tale that um, the Moroccans do this to cause extra pain to the family because everybody knows how much one needs to farewell one's dear ones, especially if there's been anything of this kind where the death is sudden and unexpected and probably painful and unhappy. Not an isolated incident? No, sadly, this really 
adds to a, a list of a whole catalogue of other incidents of this kind where Saharawis have been attacked by Moroccan settlers, probably at the instigation of the authorities, at least that's what they believe, because it seems very systematic, and the deaths are not pursued. As far as I know, there's no investigation being carried out into the unexpected deaths of Aminatou, for example. So why is that? Because surely if a normal, a usual case of a sudden uh, death, of a body being found like that, there would be an investigation as to what happened and why it happened. But in this case, they think that there's not going to be any follow-up, which is again a big insult to the Saharawis. And is this part of the problem that the, the UN body in Western Sahara doesn't have a human rights component? We certainly believe that they should have. Maybe exactly there the would be less impunity for the Moroccan authorities if there was an official body monitoring human rights abuses. They resist it very strongly and unfortunately they've got a strong ally in the Security Council in the shape of France, which always resists uh, imposing, or not imposing, but incorporating human rights responsibilities to the UN mission that's based in Western Sahara. And another front, members of the European Parliament were treated not as they should have been at um, the airport when they arrived? Exactly. Another bad story in the last little while, This month, a delegation of members of the European Parliament were visiting to assess for themselves the situation in Western Sahara. Well, MPs should always do that and should always know what they're talking about if they raise issues in Parliament. But you'd think that they would be told, you you need to know what is actually happening on the ground. And when they went to find out, first of all, they were told not to disembark and while all the other passengers left the plane on arrival in El Ayun. Then the authorities came with new boarding passes for them to board a flight to return home instead of being given an entry visa, if you like, to come into the country. We're told that International observers and members of politicians and journalists are not welcome. And I suppose that goes for filmmakers who are also wanting to highlight human rights abuses too. Even more so, even more so, yes. Uh, Some while ago, I think it was last, or about a year ago probably, an American group were there for the first time for a long time. They'd been allowed through and... Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! and a small team. Uh, I think there was another reporter and a photographer. They were first let through. Then they were, of course, they were followed the whole time. And then the authorities started playing games with them. They surrounded a cafe where they were having a meal prior to going to a, a demonstration that was going to be held. Clearly the authorities were trying to stop them from witnessing this 
or, or filming, let alone filming the uh, demonstration. They tried to give them the chase, but uh, although they had very adept driver who knew all the ins and outs of the streets, two motorcyclists followed them, so they knew very well that they were being given a message that they, their presence wasn't very welcome. They strongly support the idea that reporting should go on. And what's the, the um, story about a collaboration between Sahrawi and Palestinian filmmakers? Uh, first of all, there was a collaboration with um, an American group called Witness and the film film festival called Fisahara, and they decided to put on the web videos that have been shot locally by Saharawis. That, that's been one movement, but this other movement uh, is, is a very welcome one and a very interesting collaboration between uh, Saharawis and Palestinians who are both suffering from living in occupied territories and needing to get the story, the eyewitness video accounts out to the uh, wider public as much as they can. You spoke about uh, a moment ago the the European parliamentarians who were not treated as they should have been. There's a a Transavia airline, it's a cap price airline. They've upset the Western Saharan people too. Well, they have. And just the same week that the European parliamentarians were not allowed in, this airline started a new flight from Paris to Dakhla in the south, bringing uh, Europeans, but bringing presumably people who've been thoroughly vetted as authentic tourists because down in Dakhla there is a very well-renowned kite-surfing place because this peninsula that I mentioned earlier has this wonderful bay on the inland side of it which is ideal for kite-surfing and windsurfing. And I'd imagine that the Western Saharan people don't benefit from that tourism? Of course not, no, no they don't. And now that they've got a judgment from the European Court of Justice in last December... They are wanting to raise every time that the, there is a violation of that decision that uh, Western Sahara should not be engaged with, uh, in trade from, the Europe, from Europe. And so this airline, which is run by Air France and KLM, who are kind of amalgamated, called Transavia, as you say, initial flight was stopped, I think, by a court process by the um, lawyer who's working for the uh, Saharawis called Gilles Duvert. And I don't know, frankly, what, exactly what happened with that, whether, whether the uh, court has met or and made a decision. I have to find out. Have you got any idea how many people go for that kite-flying exercises? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think that it must be quite a popular and profitable business. There, I saw when I visited there myself because we thought it might be quite nice, interesting to stay in one of these little kite surfing villages or, you know, or resorts. 
most of them got little cabins where people can stay. But they were all fully booked when we wanted to go. We did go without any notice right out of the blue uh, at a time when it was summer, but it wasn't high summer. And I think we went to at least three different places to try and get accommodation. And there was another one which we didn't go to because night was falling and we thought we'd better go and find a hotel after, at that point. That means that there's at least four or five of these little uh, resorts and I think there's a one more luxurious hotel as well. Quite a lot of people uh, are making use of it. And they had a kite surfing festival as well down there round about 2009. And what's happening in the African Union? Ah, well, the African Union is having one of its periodic, I suppose is the word for it, summits with the European Union, the African Union, the European Union. And it was decided, for whatever reason, to hold it in Abidjan, which is in Côte d'Ivoire, which is a French, part of Francophone Africa. And most of Francophone Africa is sort of under the control of France. So they, they ganged up, the French and the Moroccans managed to persuade the local host not to invite the Sahrawis to this summit, pretending that they weren't eligible to attend. But they are a full member of the African Union and there is no reason why they shouldn't attend. The African Union executive said that if they didn't issue an invitation to the Sahrawis, they would withdraw the permission to hold the summit and it would be transferred to Addis Ababa, which is the head of the African Union, the, the central town. At that point, they decided that they would issue an invitation. But it hasn't been held yet. It's right at the end of this month, the 28th, 29th. We will wait and see, but my guess is watch this space because it won't be the end of the story. They're sure to make some trouble one way or another. And it just emphasises the point how independent those countries actually are from countries like France. That's true, yes. That's another, another point, exactly. But the, the fact of the matter is that in the African Union, the Anglophone countries are mostly the stronger ones economically, South Africa and Nigeria being two notable examples, maybe Kenya as well. They tend to be more favourable to the Sahrawis, so this is very galling for the, for the French. An article in the Jordan Times, what has that got to do with Western Sahara? I think the, the Jordan Times has done a general assessment of what it must be like in the Sahrawi refugee camps. It emphasises the, the longing that people have for their country and how they really yearn to go back to Western Sahara. And still they wait patiently for the international community to see that international justice is done because there is no reason at all why Western Sahara shouldn't have the right that every other former colony in Africa had which was to 
determine its own future. The vote of self-determination was decreed, or if you like, by by the UN back right back in 1963. In 1973, when Spain was starting to think that they might leave the colony, did start a, uh, a, a census of the population, which was concluded in 1974. It was thought that the vote would go ahead right then, but instead, uh, Hassan, King Hassan II, who was the f- father of the present King of Morocco, he decided instead that he would invade. He was quite a tactical politician, and he did it not initially or not ostensibly with the army. The army were actually there, crossing the border further inland, but they came down the main road with 350,000 Moroccans and in a so-called peaceful march they were holding a copy of the Koran and a flag uh, no guns in this uh, people demonstration the Spanish didn't want them to come but they allowed them to cross the border and then they had to turn around and go back however the army were making incursions and and the real invasion was beginning already while this happened We've just had the 42nd anniversary of the so-called Green March that stymied this process of decolonization completely, managed to mess things up for the Sahrawis. So they've never been able to conclude to be properly decolonized through a vote of self-determination. And how long after that were the people forced into the camps in Algeria? Oh, well, the, as soon as the soldiers started coming and invading, they were very brutal and the people were fleeing. In 1975 already, they were starting to huddle near to the border. It's desert. It's all desert. And sometimes the whole families would be massacred and these mass graves are, if only now, being discovered and uh, properly assessed by some um, forensic scientists in, in uh, the Basque country of Spain. So, yes, they were first sort of huddling, and then the, uh, the bombs were coming, and napalm and white phosphorus and all these horrible things. Then Algeria said they could cross the border and seek refuge in Algeria. They sent some trucks and things to help them because they were mostly on foot, all the wheeled vehicles were put to the war effort. In those moments when those things happen, families got divided, and so the old person stayed at, uh, in, in uh, Western Sahara, and the younger one went. Or the young one with a very new baby stayed, and the uh, more able-bodied one went. And so all every Sahrawi family was divided in the, those moments. I think this whole process continued into uh, 1976, whereby Sahrawis were leaving what was becoming the occupied territory, but at that time was just Western Sahara, and they were leaving a war zone because a war waged there then for 14 years. Always, though, at the beginning, they thought... It was just going to be a week or maybe two weeks or maybe two months even 
but that they would be back before very long. They never anticipated that it would be like half a lifetime. Similar to the Palestinians who took their door keys with them? Yes. Uh, There's a lot of parallels with, with Palestine. At the same time, there are differences, and Palestine hasn't always offered a peaceful resistance like the Sahrawis have, and they get in the news a lot more because of that, because they had a very active militant intifada. The Sahrawi intifada, they call it that, and some Sahrawis don't like them calling it that, but it is a resistance. It is a a popular resistance. It is very widespread. I don't think there are very many Sahrawis, although clearly a few people... Few opportunists always know which side the bread's buttered, and there are Sahrawis who work collaborate with the Moroccans, but the bulk of them are, are resisting, and they still resist. And it's really very remarkable that it should continue. That's why people like Stephen Zunes, who has studied peaceful resistance. Uh, worldwide and throughout his professional career is particularly interested in the Zaharawi case. He maintains that most of the big changes that happen happen because of peaceful popular resistance and so he is still hopeful that in the end the Zaharawis will prevail. As many people around the world do as well. Yes. And you've been listening to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association and she was talking about Dr. Stephen Zunes, Z-U-N-E-S. If you'd like to look him up, he's an expert on the situation in Western Sahara. I think he's stationed, or that's not the right word, he he works at a university in California, Dr. Stephen Zunes. Coming up to 25 minutes past 5 o'clock. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. Darabin City Council is currently undertaking community consultation for the Northcote Aquatic and Recreation Centre, NARC. If you are currently using, have used in the past or don't currently use the centre, we want to hear from you. To provide feedback, please go to yoursaydarabin.com.au forward slash NARC or collect hard copies from NARC Reception or Preston Customer Service Centre. Community consultation closes Sunday, 10th of December. A 3CR supporter.
excellent news, dear listener. It's that time of year. We once again are selling two delicious wines, generously donated by local winemaking star and 3CR supporter Luke Lambert. At $17.50, these wines are a super bargain, labelled especially for us, and they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR at those summer festivities. Give us a call on 94198377 to order, or you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Wines are available for collection from 3CR up until December 22. Ain't no mountain high enough to keep me from them. And if you're looking to buy something over the, the Christmas break, the New Year break, why not buy one of these? In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Dr. Tim Anderson, Sydney academic and member of Hands Off Syria, is back from two months in that country. Where ISIS, ISIL or DASH, the names we hear regularly, have in all sense been routed from that country. I asked him to go back to the origins of this group and who funded it. ISIS or Daesh, or they sometimes called the Islamic State, was really created in Iraq in about 2006, 2005, 2006, to begin sectarian attacks. It came out of something called Al-Qaeda in Iraq which only came about after the U.S. invasion in 2003. And the U.S., it really to cut through the myths a little bit, the U.S. commissioned Saudi Arabia to create that group in Iraq to weaken Baghdad and to prevent a strong relationship between Iran and Iraq. Remember, the U.S. had also fermented and backed Saddam Hussein in his war against Iran back in the 1980s. So the U.S. is very keen, and Israel also, that there not be good relations between Iraq and Iran over the years. What was called Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became later called the Islamic State in Iraq, and then when it moved into Syria in 2012 to join the, the Salafists in Syria, it became called the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant, or Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, ISIS or ISIL. So that's where it began. And the ongoing funding? And the, the major funding really was coming initially from Saudi Arabia and then later on Turkey became an important player and the government of Erdogan in Turkey became an important supporter of it. And then, of course, once they were robbing oil from Iraq and Syria, they were engaged in a 
the dirty oil business, shipping it up into Turkey and then the rest of the world. And what was the ultimate gain? You say that to destabilise the relationship between Iran and Iraq, but where did it lead to from there? So really it was the ideology of ISIS or Daesh was a Salafist ideology. That is to say it came from the Gulf, the Saudi Arabian idea of calling other people unbelievers or apostates who don't share your exact views, um, cutting heads, cutting hands, that vicious sort of backward medieval sort of ideology which Saudi Arabia has shared. And the idea of it was to try and marginalise their what they saw as their political opponents. In the first case, the main other Muslim group, the, the Shia, who are dominant group in Iran and in Iraq. They're also 60% in Iraq too. And they have some strong representation in Lebanon and, and also in Syria. So the idea was to marginalise them. But in the bigger picture of things, because Saudi Arabia for the last century has really been a useful tool in the hands of first the British Empire uh, 100 years ago and then since the 1950s the US Empire in the region basically to divide their enemies, to, to, to make people fight amongst each other, to divide the Arab peoples, the Muslim peoples, and, and keep them weak. But that was really the aim. And, uh, for example, there was a U.S. intelligence report in August 2012 from the DIA saying that, admitting that the insurgency, the, the violent insurrection in Syria in 2012 was led by the extremists, that is to say the Muslim Brotherhood, in league with Salafists and Al-Qaeda and uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq at that time, ISIS. And their aim was to create an Islamic state in eastern Syria, possibly eastern Syria, western Iraq, to divide both Syria and Iraq and, and weaken them. And of course, Syria and, Iraq, uh, Syria and Iran, certainly, and now to a fair degree, Iraq, represent what Israel and the Saudis fear. They fear a Iranian-led bloc, which is against Israel and supporting the Palestinians physically and materially, that is to say, providing weapons to the Palestinian resistance. We've had a big coming together of Israel and Saudi Arabia in recent times, precisely because of that fear of the rising role of Iraq in the region. Uh, Iran, sorry. And how far around the world do they go to get their recruits? Everywhere, basically. I mean, the Syrians were saying within a year that there, was a, uh, there were recruits from over 60 countries. I mean, initially they were recruiting for a group called Jabhat al-Nusra, which was uh, al-Qaeda in Syria, in western Syria. The, the groups had a dispute and there was a type of a, a demarcation dispute where ISIS or Daesh was uh, taking over parts of eastern Syria and Jabhat al-Nusra led groups, that is to say the international jihadists, the international salafists, which were linked up to the Syrian salafists, were dominating western Syria. Recruits from internationally went into Jabhat al-Nusra at first in the Syrian theatre and then later on, largely because they were paying them more, into ISIS in, in the eastern theatre in Iraq. But they came from all over North Africa, from the Middle East, and from Europe, and, of course, from, from our country, Australia, too. And, of course, many of them have been killed. That's right. Is there really a demise of, of Daesh at the moment, or ISIL, or ISIS, whatever they want to call it? Has it gone? Yes. Uh, it hasn't gone, but it's uh, seriously in, in retreat. There's a, what do you say, a rearguard action going on in Al-Bukhama at the moment, which is the, Syrian, the major Syrian city at the bottom, you could say, of the Euphrates before um, the Euphrates goes over the border into Iraq. And that last city that they held, um, the Syrian army took back a few days ago. Daesh came back and took back part of it, and now the Syrian army has brought big forces into Kippur.
and out again. They're still in the country areas in uh, eastern Syria, but Al-Bukhamal is the last big city that they actually occupied, and there's a bit of toing and proing on, on going on now, but the Syrian army is basically kicking them out of there. Similarly, in Iraq, the Iraqi forces, which you remember three years ago collapsed in place of a, a big offensive in the north of, of Iraq, in particular where they took the big city of Mosul, that's been pushed back by a group that's sometimes called the Hezbollah of Iraq. It means that it came from a fear-inspired drive to defend the country, and then has since then has included other groups and other community groups, in the, including particularly Sunni Muslims in Iraq. And that's strengthened the Iraqi forces tremendously. It's strengthened the Iraqi army, and it, it's meant that they've pushed Daesh out of all the major cities in Iraq now too, and they're taking back the border, the Syrian border in particular, so both the Syrian army and the Iraqi army are beginning to meet along that border and, and reclaim the, the border security from Daesh. If you listen to members of the US regime, they'd say that the reason they're in those countries is to get rid of Daesh. Yes, well, that was their pretext back in 2014 to reassert a military presence in Iraq and Syria, and the Australians followed them, of course. But we know that pretext is false now. In particular, I was in Syria recently in various who are investigating one of the incidents in particular where the US and the Australians had killed over 100 Syrian soldiers in a move that precisely helped Daesh take over the mountain looking over the, the airport in Derizur. It failed in the end because the Syrian army two months ago took back Derizur city from Daesh, but uh, there's been active participation of the US forces in helping Daesh. Or when Daesh are in retreat, what they've done is they've picked them up with helicopters and removed the commanders, at least, and removed them to some other areas. So there's been a, a long history of betrayal, of treachery, really, of that stated aim that they were fighting Daesh, and that's been reported in the, widely in the Iraqi and, and Syrian media, probably very little in the Australian media. And, of course, we have to reiterate that the US and Australian troops are in Syria illegally. Yes, they are. I mean... The Air Force in particular has been, the Australian Air Force with the US Air Force have been involved in, has been involved in Syria. I wrote to the Defence Minister about a year ago about this, Maurice Payne, and she responded to me earlier this year saying they were in Syria, this is after the incident where they killed over 100 soldiers in September last year. They were in Syria, she said, because there was an invitation from the Iraqi government to the UN Security Council actually, to fight Daesh in Iraq, because back at that time, in 2014, the Iraqi government felt very weak. Citizens militia, Hashd al-Shabi, the, the People's Mobilisation Unit, had not yet risen up to, to defeat Daesh in those major cities. And the reason that Maurice Payne said that the Australians got involved in Syria was because the Syrian army was, quote, unable or unwilling to fight Daesh, unquote. And that was the, the legal pretext for Australians being in Syria. Now, that's unacceptable, one, because there have been direct attacks on Syrian forces fighting Daesh in Syria, and two, because the Australian forces had not lifted a finger, had not helped at all to drive Daesh out of the biggest eastern city that we saw in, in Syria. We've seen a substituting of Kurdish proxies in Raqqa for the Daesh groups, but really the evidence is very powerful throughout Iraq and Syria now that the US has been helping covertly Daesh behind the scenes to keep destabilising those countries. So there could be a time in the future where Australian soldiers could be charged with war crimes? 
There could be, and that's what I said to Maurice Payne. I said, why are you doing this? Why are you putting Australian military at risk of this? Because there's no military basis for being there. Now they've been involved in a massacre, which clearly helped Dash take over this mountain overlooking the Darius airfield. And you're going to be held to account for it for this time. Why are you putting Australian military people at risk? And her answer? Her answer was, you know, we've had we've investigated ourselves, or the United States has investigated ourselves, and we're a loyal partner of the US, and they found nothing wrong. It was, it was a terrible mistake, and that's the end of it. Not good enough, is it? No. Talk about the Kurdish people in both Syria and Iraq. There's been a lot of support in Australia for a Kurdish homeland in those areas. How do you see it? They whipped up that support. It's like a card that they're playing in this process of trying to divide and weaken the Arab countries that have really been the front line against Israel there. And also the, the main obstacle to the U.S. dominating that whole region. The U.S. had a plan. It was announced more than 10 years ago by Condoleezza Rice in Tel Aviv to create a new Middle East, you know, with uh, democracy and freedom and all the rest of it, but really a new Middle East that was subordinate to the U.S. plan for the entire region. And we know that succeeded to a degree in Libya. They managed to destroy Libya. They thought they'd got away with it in Afghanistan and Iraq, but things are not so simple. They failed in Syria, and they've had to retreat in Iran with the member of the whole very long process of imposing sanctions against Iran for supposedly um, building you know, weapons to defend itself. So there's been an overall plan there, basically, and as various phases of that plan failed as the plan to overthrow President Assad in Damascus, for example, or the, the plan to divide Syria and Iraq with Daesh failed. The plan to divide Syria and Iraq with the Kurdish uh, statelet has also failed. And more, more recently, uh, the US had played a double game here because they didn't really openly support the partition of Iraq when uh, a referendum was held recently in the northern part of Iraq to try and carve out a, a statelet Kurdistan there. That referendum passed in, in the Kurdish areas, Kurdish-dominated areas up there. But it's failed because the Iraqi forces, the federal police in particular, and the popular mobilisation forces went into Kirkuk only a couple of weeks ago, and there was no resistance at all. They just went through that oil-rich northern city of Iraq, and there was no resistance. Because, one, because the Kurds were divided, and two, because the Iraqi forces had got much stronger in, in recent times. That initiative in, in northern Iraq has collapsed, and the one in, in northern Syria is likely to collapse too. But it's a game that the U.S. was playing without fully supporting it because they are depending on the support from Turkey, and Turkey is very strongly against this proposal because Turkey has the biggest Kurdish population in the entire region, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a long history of conflict between the Turkish state and, and the Kurdish groups in Turkey. Well, where does this leave the Kurdish people? They've been after a, a homeland for a very long time. They're spread throughout the region, uh, as I said, mainly in Turkey, but also in Iran, Iraq and Syria. But because of the conflict in Turkey, there's been a lot of migration of Turkish forces, and a lot of them come into Syria even during the conflict because of the conflict in Turkey. And there's been a lot of resentment there because they've pushed out other groups, in particular Assyrians, for example, Christian Assyrians, a large number of whom have come to, to this country in recent times. But the, the Australian Prime Minister Turnbull said recently in some telephone calls that were leaked from him and President Trump that 80% of the refugees from Syria that Australia had been accepting are Christian. 
So they've been selected as Christians, many of whom effectively have been ethnically cleansed from the north of Syria and also Iraq. They've come into Syria from Iraq, they've come into Syria from Turkey. So to reinforce that project, because the Kurdish militia in Syria are effectively linked to the, the Kurdish militia in Turkey. The worst conflict with the Kurdish groups have been really in Turkey and after that in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. But actually there hasn't been repression of Kurdish communities in Iran or Syria in recent times. But it's their political project with the support from the US to try and you know, carve some territory out there. Unfortunately, it has involved the, the pushing out, effectively the ethnic cleansing of other communities in, in northern Syria. For example, northern Syria is not dominated ethnically by Kurdish people. There are a lot of other, other people in those areas, but the militia that have been alive the US are indeed mainly Kurdish. You've recently returned from Syria. How far did you travel and what did you find? I was uh, a couple of months in Syria recently, so I, I got to Derizur after three attempts because the fighting was still going on between the Syrian army and Daesh there. The Daesh was attacking the road. Eventually we got to Derizur just a couple of weeks before it was completely liberated from Daesh. And Derizur was the most dramatic thing that I saw there. I went to Aleppo and Holland and other places too, but Derizur was dramatic because it had been recently been liberated. So there was a lot of on the one hand, excitement and elation because supplies were getting through. You know, this was a, a town that used to be 350,000 people, now down to about 70,000 people. But that included a lot of children who hadn't seen fruit and vegetables, for example, for, for years, you know, much of their lives in some cases. So now all of a sudden there were supplies and fresh fruit and so on in there. And people were very excited, but on the other hand, on the other hand, very raw because a lot of them had just come out from living under a regime of, of horror with Dash, basically, and with, with terrible stories and terrible memories. And while they had a smile on their faces when we met them, then if we asked them to tell their stories very quickly, they were they were in tears and very racked with, you know, anguish about their family members that had been killed and people that had been mutilated and so on. So it was a very raw frontier town sort of experience to see that in Derizor. What about other places, the economy? How is it going? In a number of other places of Syria that have been liberated from the terrorist groups in the western side from the groups led by Jabhat al-Nusra, in the case of Aleppo, there's been a huge return of people. The UN organisation, International Organisation for Migration, has recognised a few months ago that almost half a million people have returned to Aleppo this year, just this year, since the city was liberated late last year. So there's a lot of reconstruction, a lot of, in Aleppo, also in Homs, some other areas, not the same, uh, in Tadmor, Palmyra, that iconic historic city in the centre of Syria, visited that a, a few times. There hasn't been a big return of people there because of the uncertainty about Daesh, whether they're finally being driven out or whether they're coming back. Now, there was a return of Daesh to Tadmor last year. Like with Al-Bukhamal just now, this week, the, the city was liberated, but Daesh came back. There was a counter-attack. Now the Syrian army is counter-attacking. So some of those areas, uh, and that includes Derizur, there's going to be a slower return of people. Also in the south in Dara, there have been some ceasefires and the groups led by Jabhat al-Nusra there have stopped fighting for a time, but people are not totally confident, that is to say, displaced people in Jordan and also in southern Syria and Suleta to return to Dara yet because they want to see the surrender of arms and more some greater confidence about the, the peace there. But in Aleppo, yes, there's been a huge return of people to Aleppo. And, I mean, Aleppo was... Although there are parts of Aleppo that 
that have extreme destruction, there is a big return of people and a lot of rebuilding going on in Aleppo. I mean, you can't say it's exactly normal, but everyday life has resumed. And by that, I mean that the shops are open, markets are open, people are, are repairing their houses and so on. That's, that's very marked in Aleppo. So do you see this as a turning point? Aleppo was a turning point late last year, and Derizera is a turning point now because it really it means that there is no major city with this battle in Al-Bukhama at the moment going on. There's no major city in Syria that's controlled by Daesh anymore. The Australians, the Americans have not been any help at all to the Syrians in that. Similarly, in Iraq, it's been the, the resurgent uh, Iraqi militia that supported the Iraqi army that's liberated the major Iraqi cities from Daesh. And very interesting, isn't it, this big threat to the world, or when there was some Hollywood-style cinematic depictions of a few Americans being killed in Iraq and Syria in orange jumpsuits, all of a sudden this is a threat to the world. But now that the Iraqi forces and the Syrian forces are defeating Daesh in Iraq and Syria, where's the celebration in the Western media? I don't, I don't see it. And how are they going to get those foreign soldiers out there, the, the Air Force, the Australian Air Force, the, the US Air Force? And we have to remember too the, the other countries on the side of the Syrian government. Well, yes, as I understand it, the Air Force uh, has been based in Qatar, uh, which is now split from the Saudis and run into the arms of Iran. Interesting thing, there's a very big US base in Qatar, but Qatar now has been forced into the arms of Iran because the Saudis were the young, ruthless, rash, uh, inexperienced Saudi prince who is now running Saudi Arabia, who kidnapped the Lebanese Prime Minister recently in, in his frustration, has split with, with Qatar, and Qatar was an important ally for putting petrodollars you know, into the, the terrorist group. So there's a big mess there that they've created in their failure that's still to be sorted out. But surely the worst mess is what's happening to the people of Yemen. Well, that's the silent war, isn't it? The, the Saudis have, for all of their money, for all of their weapons that they've bought from the US and from France and Britain, they haven't been able to defeat the poorest country on earth, which is the one genuine revolution that happened during the so-called Arab Spring, where the Ansarullah movement now controls the major populated areas of Yemen and have been under, under attack for several years. There's a cholera epidemic there, there's a economic blockade, a blockade of food coming into Yemen. It's in dire situation. The main people drawing attention to that are the Iranian media. The Iranian media are the main ones that have been, to their credit, you know, drawing attention to what's going on there. The rest of the world is, is turning a blind eye. There. There's a terrible situation. This is part of the whole plan announced by George W. Bush and his Secretary of State for a new Middle East. The Saudis were complying. That's also why they're now trying to foment some conflict in the Lebanon now with the, the kidnapping of their man, Saad Hariri, who is still held in, in Saudi Arabia, hasn't returned to Lebanon yet. But Yemen is part of that, that whole big picture in the region. And the US and Israel in amongst all this, um, what's going on with this with the prince who's taken over? That prince, MBS, who's the the youngest son of the, the current Saudi king, who's in his 80s, so he's the heir apparent, this prince MBS, he's only 31 or 32. He's now formed a, quite a strong alliance with Israel and, and the US, but of course their gambits have failed, and so Israel and the Saudis in particular are very nervous about the fact that Iran and its allies, Syria and Iraq and Lebanon, now are strengthened after this, these terrible wars of the last few years.
So Israel and, and Saudis are in a conundrum, you know, what to do about that. And the Saudis seem to be trying to whip up some conflict in, in Lebanon and trying to blame Iran for everything they do. But things aren't going the way that the U.S. and its, and its regional allies wanted. And, of course, that's the wild card at the moment. You know, the U.S. has never been able to lose well in a war. We saw with Vietnam that it took them, I think, seven years to accept defeat in, in Vietnam. Uh, and then they tried to mythologize it later on in, in, in Hollywood, of course. But how the U.S. loses in this big regional gambit in the Middle East is the thing that's going to affect a lot of lives still, even though it's clear that they are losing. But how they will lose and how many more people will, will suffer and lose their lives as a result of this is, is the big wild card. And you just wonder then where will they, where will they focus on them because they're moving further and further into Africa? Yes, well they've got, I mean that was part of their complaint against Gaddafi in Libya, wasn't it? That he wouldn't join AFRICOM, he wouldn't join this big so-called campaign against terrorism that gives them a pretext for being in virtually every part of the world, Latin America. Now they took their eyes off Latin America with these Middle East wars, they lost Latin America when the late Hugo Chavez created those big regional organisations in Latin America. Their ambition has just gone too far. It has to remind me of, of Hitler and you know, the, the empires of the past that overreached themselves, Napoleon. They went too far and they fell apart because everyone was against them. They couldn't maintain the ambition that they wanted. Now they want to sanction Russia, but sanctioning Russia doesn't go down well with the Europeans. Sanctioning Iran isn't going down too well with the Europeans now too. So they're losing their friends in this process as, as well as creating a very large network of enemies. Can you just explain, Tim, if Daesh is, is finished and it was the creation of the US and Saudi Arabia, why are they focusing the West still with terror attacks? Why are they carrying out terrorist attacks? Because these countries should have been their friends. Because they, they've created a Frankenstein monster and you can't control everything they do. Maybe there's been some coordination with the Daesh command, which we know goes back to Washington with the attacks in Europe, but you also create wildcards that can carry out operations in Turkey and, and Europe and other countries when they fear they're being betrayed, you know. This is the great danger. These things can come back and, and sting you when you set them up. You set up large groups of armed fanatics, mercenaries, with an enormous amount of weaponry. I don't know if you saw the pictures I posted of all the weapons that they had taken from Daesh in, in Derizur, in, in Almaty in particular, in Derizur, and shipped them up to Derizur City. There's a huge amount of weapons, and, and massive weapons, uh, massive amounts of them, and, and weapons factories. It's difficult to control all, the, all of the consequences of these sorts of things. The problem is, of course, that, I think as I said before, that Daesh has clearly lost the war there against Syria and Iraq, but they can keep killing people, and they do keep killing people. Even in eastern Damascus, Jabhat al-Nusra, they're, they're in a shrinking part of territory there in the East Scooter, but they keep sending grenades and mortars and these gas cylinders filled with dirty weapons, homemade weapons, into Damascus, eastern Damascus City and killing people. There's no point to it. They're not taking over any territory. They're losing there, but they're still carrying out these attacks, and that, that's very sad for me to see that forces losing a war can't accept that and keep on killing people. Talking with people in Syria, the, the ordinary people, the grassroots people, they know that you're Australians. What's the message that's in with you? Well, the first message I got from ordinary people there was, look, we're very sorry you weren't here before. You didn't see our country before. And the next thing they say is just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. They're sick of all these lies. The most recent ones being, well, the initial lies were about, you know, the, 
the president killing his own people, that Syrians want to kill their own children, those sorts of stupid lies. And then after that, the pretext that the US would come over there and save all those people from Daesh, something that he's created through the Saudis, as you say. They're tired of those lies and, and the treachery that's involved there. You know, that the fact that they will come and attack Syrian soldiers as they're fighting Daesh in the name of fighting Daesh. I mean, those lies, the Syrian people saw through that a long time ago. I think we have to see through it and tell our own communities about these lies and about the crimes that our own armed forces have been pushed into in Syria and in Iraq. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And that's Dr Tim Anderson, who's recently returned after two months in Syria. And I recorded that interview with Tim late last week. He's also a member of Hands of Syria. That's about all I have for today. I had hoped to play the speech by Rob Starry from the IPAN conference, but I just didn't have enough time, so hopefully I'll be playing it on the, the program next week. But stay tuned. In a couple of minutes' time, you'll be hearing from Done By Law, so we'll go out with a, a little bit of music and... It'll be done by law. Bye for now.